Thank you so much, Jeff. You, I just so thank, so appreciative of you. Your voice is so epic, though. When you're doing it, you're like, and guess who we have with us? Jim, Donnie, and I was like, oh, there must be some other important guy here that I'm like looking around. It's not me because I don't feel that special. But um, thank you so much. And it's been such a joy to work with Jeff. has done such an amazing job serving other churches in this region and just his friendship. But I also just bring greetings from Philadelphia. Um, if you pick up my accent, sorry if you can't understand me. The word water means, you would say like water. Um, so I'll try if you need translation to help. But just greetings from Philadelphia and from our church. We are so thankful for Kyle, the pastoral team, all of you, just the partnership that we have uh, in the gospel. So I'm thrilled to to be with you here this morning. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 9, if you're taking notes, the uh, title of my message is Pray and Go. And I want to start with a story as you're turning there. In the winter of 1925, a small Alaskan town called Nome, which is situated on the edge of the Arctic Circle, found itself on the brink of an unimaginable crisis. An outbreak of diphtheria threatened to wipe out the entire community of 1,400 people. Nome's lone physician, a man named Curtis Welch, feared that if this infection spread, it could destroy the surrounding communities, totaling more than 10,000 people. The outbreak began in December 1924 when Welch saw what he thought were cases of tonsillitis. But when the number of cases grew and children began to drop dead, he feared the worst. Diphtheria is a highly contagious bacterial disease that attacks the respiratory system. Fortunately, a cure was available, an antitoxin. The problem was that the antitoxin was almost 700 miles away. And there was no way for a boat to get there because the harbor was frozen over. And there was no way for a plane to get there because there were only open cockpit planes. The only way to get it there was by dog sled. So the U.S. Post Office recruited their best dog sled teams, a total of 20, and positioned them along the route. The entire route ordinarily took the Postal Service 25 days to cover. But Dr. Welch couldn't wait that long because the serum lasted only six days and people were dying. The dogs would have to complete the journey in less than a quarter of the normal time. So the journey began on the night of January 27th. The first musher left with his team of 11 dogs and the temperature dropped to negative 58 degrees. He developed hypothermia and by the time he'd completed his 52-mile leg, three of his dogs were dead. The serum then made its way from musher to musher. Some dogs collapsed from frostbite. One musher had to hook up to the harness and help pull his own sled. One musher got hit with an 80-mile-an-hour gust as a storm came in. His sled flipped, and the serum flew off into the snow. He had to take off his gloves and dig through the snow to get the serum, and he got frostbite on his hand. A powerful storm ripped over Alaska with the wind chills reaching negative 85 degrees. One of the mushers made a dangerous drive across the Norton Sound with his lead dog Togo navigating the way. 
The musher could not see at all. It was completely up to this dog who made his way in the blinding storm. And then a dog named Balto led the last dog sled team into Nome with the precious serum. Altogether, it took them only five and a half days, and the entire town was saved. Now, the men who led these dog sled teams, they saw the desperate need. They saw the helplessness of the people who were dying in Nome. They they had compassion. And that compassion moved them. And they saved that town. And what a joy they must have felt to be a part of that rescue mission. Jesus is also on a rescue mission here in Matthew chapter 9. And let's look at verse 35. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. So Jesus is on a rescue mission. And He is going through, it says, all the cities and villages. He's going from town to town, and He's doing two things, right? He's proclaiming the gospel, and He's healing the sick. I love this picture of Jesus. I mean, imagine him coming into these towns, healing every disease and affliction. The whole town is coming to him, and then he's proclaiming the gospel, the joy. And then he goes and does it to the next town. I I just love his heart. Do you see what he's doing? He's bringing blessing and joy and wholeness. This is what he does everywhere he goes. And it's also what the early church does in Acts. They are preaching the gospel and healing the sick. So Jesus is on a mission. But why? Why is he on this mission? Well, verse 36 tells us it's because people are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep are extremely temperamental and vulnerable creatures. They are constantly being harassed and picked off by predators with almost no way to defend themselves. And they even harass one another. Without a shepherd, they create a pecking order and they'll, they'll push each other off a nice tuft of grass and sometimes not even let other sheep drink or rest. The sheep become anxious, unable to function. And without a shepherd, they blindly follow one another into bad decisions. They, they can't find food or water on their own. It's not uncommon for them to starve or dehydrate. They are probably the clearest example of helpless creatures. Now, human babies are the most helpless creatures at birth, but they're eventually able to take care of themselves at least in theory. But sheep remain helpless 
for the duration of their lives. When Jesus sees these sheep, when He sees the crowds in all the cities, His response is compassion. Now, the Greek word used here, which I can't pronounce, is much stronger than compassion. It means that when He saw the crowds, it was gut-wrenching. His heart went out to them. And I love this about Jesus. He has great compassion on them. They have no shepherd. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're getting harassed and beat up. They're leading each other astray. They're being led to the slaughter. And Jesus is moved by this. It brings out compassion in him. Oscar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party. He ran a factory in Poland during World War II. And he hired many Jews to run that factory. And as the war progressed, Schindler began to see the Jews. He began to see how they were being mistreated. There's one scene in the movie Schindler's List when they are, I hate that they use this word, liquidating the Krakow ghetto. So they're pulling people out, killing them, and shipping them away to the death houses, the concentration camp. There's a little girl in a red coat. The entire movie is in black and white. And you see this little girl in a red coat. All you see, the only color is her red coat, this beautiful little girl. And she comes out as people are being shot. She's stepping over by. She's just walking slowly through there. And it's a very creative way that they're showing that Oscar Schindler sees this girl. He's just watching this girl as death is all around. And in a later scene, she is dead and her body with that little red coat is carried away on a cart. Oscar Schindler saw the Jews. He saw that they were harassed and helpless, and he had compassion on them. He had a compassion that moved him to do everything that he could to save them. Well, Jesus has compassion too. He had compassion when he saw the lost sheep in all the towns of Israel. He saw them, and it moved him. He had eyes to see the people that were being harassed. I often don't have eyes to see that people are being harassed. I'm often too busy thinking about myself. Commentator Charles Price said, compassion comes from seeing people in their true state. Praying for compassion is not likely to be very effective. Opening our eyes to see people as they really are is the true source of compassion. Brothers and sisters, non-Christians are lost and they are helpless. And Jesus saw them in their true state. He saw that they were separated from God and storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Do we see them in their true state? 
There are people all around us who don't know Jesus, and the enemy is harassing them day and night. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, they are being deceived. People all around us are hurting. They're anxious and depressed and dejected and lonely and suicidal. They're being funneled down a path of destruction, deceived into thinking that the things of this world, the ideas and promises of this world will bring them joy. But instead, they live in pain and sorrow and hopelessness. And and they're helpless. They can't get out. They can't break their chains. They can't save themselves. When Jesus saw this, His compassion welled up inside Him. Do we have compassion when we see the law? I often don't. I can see non-Christians as a problem, or I can look down on those whose lives are messed up. I can view them as not worth the effort. We, we can even see them as the enemy. Jesus doesn't see them this way. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see them? Aren't you glad that that is not how the Savior viewed you? He sees them as lost sheep, and He sees them with compassion. But there is another problem besides the fact that people are harassed and helpless. There's a major problem, and that is we don't have enough people to help them. The other problem is that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's verse 37. The problem isn't that the harvest is plentiful. We usually want a plentiful harvest. And if there isn't anything to harvest, that's an even bigger problem. But this harvest is the lost sheep that need to be rescued. It's the lost men and women who need to hear the gospel. The problem that Jesus highlights is not the harvest. There's plenty to harvest. It's that we don't have enough people to do the work. We don't have the workers. There aren't enough people in the fields. The crop is going to die. People are going to die. And Jesus wants to help them. Jesus switches analogies here. He could have stuck with the sheep and the need to rescue them, but he switches to this huge field that that can't be harvested. This is a major tragedy. Bringing in a harvest It's supposed to be a time of celebration and joy and blessing, but a harvest that is wasted and dies is cause for great sorrow and mourning. I read recently that one farmer in California had to let millions of strawberries rot because there was no one. They can't find the workers to pick them. I heard of another farmer who was forced to plow 300,000 heads of fresh lettuce back into the ground because there was no one to harvest. Do you see the massive harvest all around you? Your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, your family members, 
waitresses, people at the gym, people at the grocery store, at the bank, at Starbucks, your mechanic, your hairdresser, your mailman. There are plenty of lost people. We have not run out of them. There are non-Christians all around us. It is a huge harvest And the heart of Christ is to help them. And he wants you to help him with the harvest. We, we can make a difference in this. I mean, you can almost hear Jesus encouraging us, guys, guys, we can do this. We can do it. I'll tell you a great story. There was a guy named Romeo uh, who came through our bridge course. I'm so excited that you guys started this bridge course. We've been doing it for years, and it's been amazing how many people God has saved through this. And so this man named Romeo came through just uh, a couple months ago, maybe six months ago, and uh, he was an atheist. And he would tell people, if he found out that somebody was a Christian, he would try to tear down their Christianity. Uh, there was a woman in his work who was in tears one day, and he came up to her and said, what's wrong? And her boyfriend had died, but, but she said that God was helping her to get through. He said, God didn't help you get through that. You did that yourself. And so he had all these answers. He would go to YouTube and find these answers to defeat Christians. Well, his son brought him to the bridge course. And at, he decided to come to the bridge course because he thought he could tear down what other people, what Christians believe. But as he heard the gospel week after week, the gospel began to penetrate the defenses. And on this bridge retreat, he gave his life to Christ. And one of the things that Romeo said that is so beautiful, he said, in his testimony, he said, I can't stop thinking about grace. He said, all I do at work is I doodle the word grace, and I write it down, and I make little puzzles, and I just trace it, and I just write about grace. He can't believe God's grace has come. And guys, listen, we can tell people about grace. We have the privilege to tell them about God's grace, about how they can be rescued. We can bring them to the good shepherd. We just need to join Jesus in the fields. God wants to use us to rescue people who are lost. Now, I know it's hard. And I know it's very easy to feel guilty and condemned, right? We all feel like failures when it comes to this, don't we? But listen to me. Don't let the flesh condemn you and convince you that you'll never change. Let's, let's not ignore what God is trying to do this morning. Conviction is a gift from God, and so is repentance. God is eager to forgive us and to change us. He doesn't just leave us where we are. He changes us and conforms us to the image of Christ. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we're seeing what God wants us to be like. And we're not on our own. We have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working in us to help us become more like Christ. And in this passage, good news, Jesus tells us what we should do. Verse 38, it says, Therefore, pray earnestly. 
to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So that's my first point. What do we do? Pray. Number one, pray. Please note who we are praying to. The Lord of the harvest. This means that he is in charge of the harvest. He's overseeing the whole thing. We are not in charge. It's not up to us to do this on our own. God is the key in evangelism, and that's good news. We don't have to put undue pressure on ourselves or think that it's all up to us. It's not. It's up to God to bring these lost sheep into the fold. Now, we do have a role to play, an important role. We are called to befriend the lost and to share the message of the gospel. We we have to get to work in the field, but God does the heavy lifting. God is behind everything that we want to see happen. We need God to direct us to people. We need God to give us favor with them. We need God to open their hearts, to convict them of sin, to give them a clear understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross. We need God to regenerate them, to give them the gift of faith and repentance and to save them. We can't do any of that. This is why prayer is so critical. It's why Jesus says we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the Father. And it's why Jesus says we should pray earnestly. We we should pray fervently. And this is where spending time with non-Christians and seeing how lost they are will really help us. It will produce compassion, which in turn will lead to prayer. One of my favorite quotes in evangelism is by a guy named Mark McCloskey, he says, if you want to gain a heart for the lost, go out and spend time with the lost and see how lost they really are. And I have found that to be very true. Spending time with those who don't know the Lord will fuel your prayer. It's like praying for an orphan that you're sponsoring in Africa. We, we prayed periodically for the kids that we sponsored through Covenant Mercies, which is a ministry from our church that sponsors kids in Africa. Um, and so we would pray sometimes for those kids, but we would forget about that. When I traveled to Zambia and I saw the girl that we sponsored, a little girl named Prudence, First of all, I was bawling all over this girl and hugging her and crying. This just poor little girl, this big white American is just crying all over. But that was another problem. But when I saw where she lived and I went into her house and I saw what her life was like, I felt incredible compassion. And it compelled me to pray in ways that I never have. It is the same with the lost. Listen, spend time with lost people. Spend time with them and you will pray for them. You will pray earnestly. But what do you pray? Well, pray first that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest field. Pray that the one who is sovereign in salvation will send out laborers into the harvest. This passage is emphasizing the need for laborers. Jesus is in the middle of the harvest, and he wants us to join him. The problem is not with the harassed sheep that are lost and running away from God, or the availability of ripe wheat, which is the readiness of people to hear and receive the gospel. It's that we don't have enough workers. 
We don't have enough laborers to get into the fields. We don't have enough Christians to do the hard work of reaching the lost. We don't have enough Christians willing to sacrifice to reach men and women with the gospel. So we must pray. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray for the mission? Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for evangelists and and missionaries? Do you pray for the spread of the gospel? So that's number one, pray. Number two, go. It's not enough to just see the need to, to feel compassion or to even pray. We must go. Prayer leads to going. It's not an option for us as followers of Christ to keep the message of the gospel to ourselves. We have to reach out to the lost. Not just someone else, not just the bold people, not just the extroverted people, not just the mature Christians or the gifted evangelists or those on the mission field or those on a church plant, but us. Now, where do I get this from? Well, I get this from chapter 10. You'll notice in chapter 10 that Jesus didn't just set up a series of prayer meetings to pray for the lost. He immediately sends out his disciples to do what he's been doing. Jesus didn't intend to be the only one in the harvest field. He's always intended for his followers to do the harvesting. He hinted this at chapter 4 of Matthew where he said, I will make you fishers of men. There is a significant transition taking place here in chapter 10. Jesus has been the one doing all the ministry. So he's preaching the gospel. He's teaching, healing the sick. So he's out front and the disciples are bringing up the rear. So their job was more like crowd control. They're, they're kind of carrying the bags. They're kind of like the bench players on an NBA team. Do you ever see that? Like the bench players, their job is just to bring a lot of hype. Like somebody dunks it and they're like, whoa. And they jump up and they have to hold everybody back. Did you ever see that? Your job is like hold one another back. Okay, that's kind of like what the disciples are doing, right? They're, they're just kind of the hype team, and Jesus like casts out demons and heals the sick, and they're like, whoa, whoa, like hold the crowd back. So they're not really participating much. Well, that all changes. And now they're coming into the game, and Jesus is sending them out, and Jesus is now going to come behind them. There's this huge transfer taking place, a passing of the baton. Jesus is sending them out to do ministry. And listen, the disciples are an answer to prayer. He said, pray to the Lord of Harvest to send out labors into service. Here's 12 disciples. Oh, oh my goodness. Here we go. We have them. Praise God. And now he's sending them out into the harvest field. Now, you might object right now and say, well, listen, the 12 disciples. I mean, these guys are apostles. Some of these dudes wrote scripture. These guys are the all-stars, and I'm not. Well, they're actually not all-stars, and they're actually nothing special. One commentator said that this is a, the picture of the disciples is of sheer ordinariness. They are the unspectacular raw material that God likes to work with. Aren't you glad that God likes to work with unspectacular 
raw material. And if you're still not convinced, in Luke chapter 10, after Jesus sends out the 12, he sends out the 72. So if the disciples were the bench warmers, these guys are the D-League. I mean, they are just regular old followers of Christ. We don't even know their names. That's because they're us. It's because all followers of Christ are called to help others become followers of Christ. But it ain't going to be that easy. There was a guy in our bridge course, he went through a bridge, and we do this thing called the bridge study afterwards. It's like a small group study, Bible study, to help transition people into the church. And there was this guy named Bill who was in there, and I don't think he had become a Christian. And um, he was kind of a blue-collar guy, you know, uh, a little bit of a rougher guy. And so um, I said at the end, we talked about the church. I said, so Bill, are you going to be coming to the church? Are you going to be coming on Sunday morning? And he goes, well, it ain't going to be that easy. And I said, Bill, why? Why isn't it going to be that easy? He goes, well, spring and all. And I, was exp- I think he meant like spring. Uh, maybe you don't have that around here. Like you have to mulch and you have to do all this yard work and stuff. But that phrase, it ain't going to be that easy, we've kept that phrase around for a long time. And when it comes to evangelism, it ain't going to be that easy. As we get into chapter 10, Jesus tells us about a gathering storm. Jesus is going to take the brunt of this storm. The opposition will be intense and unrelenting. Jesus is going to experience trials and resistance and violence until the end, until they finally get him and have their way with him. And that is all a part of his calling and mission. And it's true for us as well. Like Jesus, we will be opposed in our mission to reach the lost. And it's getting worse. The message of the gospel that we're sinners that deserve hell and can only be saved through the death of Christ is not a popular message. In fact, everything we believe is basically offensive. We have lost whatever popularity we at one time had. We are increasingly seen as hateful, unethical, and oppressive, and the opposition is growing, which should not surprise us. Jesus actually prepared us for this. Look at Matthew 10. I want to just bounce through a couple of these verses so you can see. In verse 7, Jesus, as he's sending out the twelve, He says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. So there's we're doing the same exact thing. Jesus proclaimed the gospel, healed the sick. That's here's our message. Proclaiming the gospel and healing the sick. And then as he goes down, he's trying to encourage them and prepare them. In verse 14, he says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, wait, you mean as we go out to share the gospel, some people are not going to be receiving us? They're not going to be listening to our words. And then he says in verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this has got to be the worst motivational speech in the history of motivation. Think about the disciples. They're already scared. They got used to their job. They were the hype team. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is like, Okay, guys, time for you guys to go out 
And so, okay, everybody bring it in. Get your hands in here. On the count of three, sheep among wolves, okay? They're like, all right, ready, guys, let's get in here. Yeah, one, two, three. Sheep among wolves, all right, sheep among wolves. Sheep among, wait, wait, what? Sheep among wolves? I did some research on this at one point. I, I don't know if these are totally accurate. It was something like sheep have like 16 teeth. A wolf has like 32 teeth, all right? The sheep can run this fast. The wolf is like three times as fast. It, this is not a competition. Like these sheep are dead. They are toast. And Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking right now? Jesus is basically saying, you're dead meat. Go ahead. Good luck, guys. You have one. You know, I'm going to hang back now, but you guys can go ahead. I mean, this is crazy. And then look at what he says. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog in their synagogue. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings. And then look down at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, what in the world? And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Anybody want to sign up for the mission? Hey, we're doing an outreach today. Oh, just come on along. You, we're just going to go out and be hated by all for the sake of Jesus' name. I mean, that's unbelievable. Do you see how strong this language is? Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now you're a fugitive. Now you're running for your life. And then verse 26, so have no fear of them. What? Jesus, what are you talking Have no fear? You just told us that we're going to be like chewed up by these wolves. We're going to be flogged and beaten and dragged before governors. We're going to have our own family members putting on, I mean, have no fear. How can you possibly say this? Well, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? This is about eternity. It's an eternal perspective. We can sacrifice now. They can kill our bodies now because of what he's preparing for us in eternity. And so Jesus immediately takes their eyes into the future and tells them why they shouldn't fear. Then 32, he says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So he's saying this isn't an option. Evangelism, reaching out, it, it is not an option. And it's not just waiting for them to come to us. We have to speak up. We have to tell them about Christ. We cannot, we have to acknowledge him before men. And then verse 34, he says, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Now don't misunderstand. He has come to bring peace between us and God, right? Romans 5. We have peace with God. But listen, not peace with others. Not uh, we have a vertical piece, not a horizontal piece. He's come to bring a sword. This is going to be a fight. It is going to be a battle. There's going to be opposition. This is not going to be easy. He says, I 
have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. And then he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You have to put mission above your family. And you have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to die to bring the gospel to people. Yikes. When I became a Christian, I did not know I was signing up for this. It feels like you're signing up for the Cub Scouts and you end up on Paris Island for the Marine Corps boot camp. Right? I mean, listen, this is important to understand. When you became a Christian, you may not have realized, but you signed up for a mission to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. And as we seek to carry out that mission, we will meet with opposition. Like Jesus, we will be opposed. And listen, this doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. It actually means we're doing something right. If we're not being opposed, we're doing something wrong. You follow that? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And church, we have to be prepared for this. If we are going to be faithful stewards of the gospel, if we are going to be a church that reaches into the darkness, we have to be able to absorb the blows of the opposition. Like boxers, we have to be able to take some hits. The Rocky movies, which I love, are all about taking a hit, all right? So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the Rocky movies, every single movie is basically him getting beat to a pulp, getting punched and bludgeoned until he's half dead, and then he kind of wins in the end. So sorry, that's a spoiler. But my favorite Rocky quote in all the movies, I think it's in the one, I think it was called Balboa, where he says this, it ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And I love that quote because guess what? It's true. Brothers and sisters, we have to be able to take a hit and keep moving forward with the message of the gospel. There's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us not count it hard, but let us be willing to bear scorn and contempt for him. Let us say to ourselves, then did they spit in his faith. What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame since it comes upon me for his Dear sake, see, that wretch is about to spit in Christ's face. Put your cheek forward that you may catch that spittle upon your face that it fall not upon him again. For as he was put to such terrible shame 
everyone who has been redeemed with his precious blood ought to count it an honor to be a partaker of the shame if by any means we may screen him from being further despised and rejected of men. You know, there's a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's List when Schindler has to flee the country after he saved over 1,100 Jews. He had risked his life time and time again. He gave the equivalent of more than $100 million of his own money to rescue as many Jewish men, women, and children as he could. And there's an incredibly powerful scene at the end of the movie where Schindler is there with the 1,100 Jews and he's talking to his friend Ithac Stern who had helped him in all this. And he says, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I just... I could have gotten more. And Ithac says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. And Oscar says, if I'd made more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. If I had just, there will be generations because of what you did. Oscar says, I didn't do enough. You did so much. He says, this car. Goth would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. And then he removes his Nazi pin from his lapel. And he says, this pin, two people, this is gold. Two more people, he would have given me two for at least one. One more person, a person stern for this. And he just breaks down sobbing in his arms and he says, I could have gotten one more person. And I didn't. And I didn't. Oscar Schindler saw the Jewish people in their desperate plight. He sacrificed so much to save so many. He was like Christ in this. But he was right. He didn't give everything. But Jesus did. Jesus gave everything. Jesus did sacrifice His life. When Jesus saw us in our lost condition, as we were barreling toward hell, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, careening toward an eternity of suffering, He had compassion. It was gut-wrenching for Him. And so He left His throne above. He became one of us. He became the Son of Man. He clothed Himself in flesh so that His flesh could be pierced so that his body could absorb our curse. He gave everything, even his life, to save us from hell. And he now calls us to take up our cross and follow him and to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. Yes, it's dangerous and scary, but Jesus has given us the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us boldness to overcome our fears so that we can reach the loss with the greatest news in the world, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to give you just two practicals as I close. 
One, I want to urge you, befriend those who don't know Jesus. Make friends with people who don't know Christ. Bring them into your lives. Get into their lives. Reach out to them. Go out to lunch with your coworkers. Have coffee. Build those friends. And then second, bring them to the bridge course. One of the hardest things for Christians to know, what do I say? How do I, how do I share the gospel? Bring them to bridge. It's a great context where you can hear these messages and have those. It's not too late. It's just, it just started. Think about somebody you could bring and ask them not just to come, but tell them that you'll go with them and bring them out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, how can we thank you enough for, for giving your own life? You did give everything so that we could be rescued, Lord. And it's so easy for us to forget when we were lost, when we were in darkness, trapped. Lord, we thank you for sending people to us. Thank you for giving them the boldness to open their mouth and to share the good news with us. And Lord, I pray that you would move each one of us, that you would motivate us to reach the lost, that you would use us, help us to overcome our fears, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.